Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but I promise I won't take that long in doing it. We're getting into the home stretch of the Gospel of Luke. So many of you are familiar with Ligonier Ministries. We put the Table Talk magazines out there on the, on the resource table. R.C. Sproul's ministry, Ligonier's. Well, for the past five or six years, Ligonier Ministries, along with Lifeway, which is the Southern Baptist Research arm, they've published this State of Theology survey. And this survey comes out about every two years, and it's been coming out since about 2014, and the sample size is about 3,000 U.S. adults. And out of that 3,000, 711 of those identify as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. And here's what's sad about these trends, about these studies is that self-proclaiming, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians are denying many of the key tenets of the Bible. There is an increase of evangelicals. We're not talking about just the average person out there. We're talking those who identify themselves as Bible-believing, evangelical Christians. There is an increase in evangelicals who deny the deity of Christ. Here was one of the questions that was asked. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now in 2020, 30% of evangelicals agreed with that. In 2022, 43% of evangelicals agreed with that. Just in two years, there's been a 13% increase in those who do not believe in the deity of Christ among evangelical Christians. Here's another question that was asked in this survey. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. In 2020, 23% of evangelicals agreed with this. In 2022, 38% agreed with this. It's increasing among evangelicals. Here's another question from that survey. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 2020, 15% agreed. 2022, 26% agreed. So there is a dangerous trend happening among self-professed evangelical Christians when it comes to key tenets of Christianity. You could say that around 25 to 30 percent of Bible believing evangelical Christians do not believe in the authority of the Bible, the deity of Christ, and some of the main things that the the scriptures teach about our faith. Houston, we have a problem. I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the past few weeks since this study has come out. That's a sermon for another week about how do we address this. But there is a dangerous trend happening 
among those that are Bible-believing evangelical Christians that are wandering from the truth. They're denying some of the key tenets of the faith. And so we live in a world where there are a lot of questions. We live in a world where the culture doesn't really understand what we believe. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand truth. And so we need to come to grips with this and ask some questions. We cannot take for granted, I cannot take for granted anymore that if you're sitting here this morning that you understand absolute truth. I can't take that for granted anymore because the statistics show that there are many that come to church that may not buy what the Bible says. So this morning, we're going to ask the ultimate question. It's the ultimate question that everybody's asking in the passage of Scripture before us this morning. And it's a very simple question, but it's the ultimate question. And it's simply this. Who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? There's a lot of confusion. A lot of answers. And so we're going to look at Luke's gospel this morning. And, and where we're coming on the heels of last week was Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And Peter denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus is arrested, taken to trial. Remember last week he made eye contact with Peter, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so in Luke's gospel, there are three trials. You got a trial in the morning with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, you got a trial before Pilate, and then you got a trial before Herod. But if you go to the other gospels, like Matthew and Mark and John, There's a trial in the middle of the night. Luke does not record that, but there's a trial in the middle of the night. Now, it's interesting that Jesus does not really get a fair trial. There's there's a lot of illegalities that are going on here by the Jewish leaders. So, first of all, no trial was ever supposed to happen in the middle of the night. Probably around 2 o'clock in the morning is when the first trial of Jesus happens. So the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come together, they bring Jesus on trial at night. It's illegal to try anyone in the cover of darkness. Number two, you could not directly question the person that you were accusing. And they kept questioning Jesus directly, directly. That was against the law as well. And thirdly, you had to bring at least two or three witnesses to come and defend the accused. Jesus is not awarded any of these courtesies. It's an illegal kangaroo trial that happens in the middle of the night. So what the Sanhedrin has to do is they have to meet again in the morning To quote-unquote make it legitimate because what they did in the middle of the night was illegitimate. So Luke's gospel picks up in the morning. This really the second trial. There was one that was illegal in the middle of the night. All of them were illegal pretty much. But let's ask the question, who is Jesus? And let's see this trial unfold before us this morning. So let's begin by reading Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. What I want to do this morning is I want us to see five descriptions of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Let's let the text answer the question for us. Here's number one. Jesus is the suffering 
servant. Now, why do I say suffering servant? Well, obviously, he's being beaten here. He's being mocked. And the word mocked really means, in the original language, it means to dance around the person, mocking them, making fun of them. In this mocking, kind of playful, condescending way. They blaspheme Jesus. That means they ridiculed Jesus. They cussed in his face. They scorned him. It's almost sadistic in what they're doing. They're, they're prophesying or they're hitting him and saying, hey, who hit you? They're, they're, it's almost like they're doing this with sadistic pleasure. Matthew 26, 67 through 68 says this, they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Slapped him in the face, spit in his face, striking him, blaspheming him, mocking him. Now, this imagery comes from the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah tells us that Jesus is the suffering servant. The book of Isaiah talks about this suffering servant who would come on the scene that would be the Messiah. And so 700 years before this, Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant who would be pierced, who would be mocked, who would go through this violent death. In Isaiah chapter 50, 5 through 6, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's a direct prophecy about Jesus. Did not turn his face. His face was slapped. His face was hit. He, he was spat upon. And then you're very familiar with Isaiah 53. Three through four. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. We sang it earlier. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Right here with the beating and the mocking and the, and the pulling of the, of the face and the, and, and the slapping and all the things that are happening to Jesus, this is an Old Testament fulfillment of Jesus as the suffering servant. And as I thought about that this week, suffering servant, he did it as a servant. He did it for us, serving us, not serving himself, not demanding that he get any type of rights, but taking it all as a servant for us. So just this sadistic act of mocking him shows that Jesus, number one, is the suffering servant as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And think of all the physical punishment Jesus endures before the cross. This is before the cross. Okay, number two, let's keep reading. Let's go to 66 through 71. When the day came... In the middle of the night, the other Gospels have this false kangaroo court thing going on in the middle of the night. This is Luke just records right here. The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priest and the scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Number two, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, that may not mean much to you. What does it mean that he's the Son of Man? Well, verse 67, they ask the ultimate question, right? What's the question they ask? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? Are you the Christ we've been waiting for? And Jesus answers their question with more than what they can handle. Notice what Jesus says in verse 69. But from now on, speaking of himself, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In fact, Jesus says, I am the Son of Man that's going to be seated in power and glory. Now, at first glance, you may be thinking, well, what does that mean? He's the Son of Man, seated in power and glory. Well, these religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. This struck them a blow that they understood because there are two Old Testament passages that speak about the Son of Man. Who is this Son of Man that's going to be clothed in power and glory? Well, the first image is from Psalm 110. Verse 1. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's a very important psalm. It's the most quoted in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You may not know this, but this is the only Old Testament prophecy where a man is allowed to sit at the right hand of God. And who is the man that's allowed to sit at the right hand of God? The Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus. So what Jesus is saying to these men is, listen guys, I'm the Messiah that's going to be seated at the right hand of God. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one that has all authority and power. You're looking at him right here. There's a second place where the Son of Man imagery comes into place, and we sang it this morning. Blessing and honor, glory and power belong to the ancient of days. Like, where do you get ancient of days from? Well, you get ancient of days from Daniel. Who's the ancient of days? The ancient of days is Yahweh, God the Father. But Daniel sees a vision of this Son of Man coming and being presented before the ancient of days. This is the second Old Testament passage in Matthew 7, 13-14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says to these men, Are you the Christ, Jesus? Well, you bet I am. As a matter of fact, I'm the Son of Man that's going to be crowned with power and glory because I'm going to not only die on the cross and rise again, but I'm going to ascend right back to the right hand of the Father and I'm going to be crowned with power and glory, and then I'm going to come back in power and glory at my second coming. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man that Daniel saw 
with power and glory. I'm the one that's going to be seated to the right hand of God the Father. I am the Son of Man. I'm the Son of God. I am coming back in judgment. From now on, you will see me coming in power and glory. One commentator says this, Jesus declared unambiguously that he was the divine Messiah and nothing less than the Son of God. And this forms the very cornerstone of Christianity by which it must stand or fall. Only those who believe unconditionally that he is really and truly the beloved Son of God have the right to be called Christians. This was the answer the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders were waiting for. Because now they could say, we've got him. What's the charge? The charge is blasphemy. Because Jesus is saying, I am God. We've got him. That's the charge. We've been waiting for him to say it. He said it with his own lips. Now we can charge him with the crime of blasphemy. Because Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, the Son of Man. And in fact, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man. Now here's the problem. These Jewish leaders had no authority to kill Jesus. That was relegated to the Roman Empire. Only the Roman authorities could put Jesus to death. This kangaroo court convened and they condemned Jesus as a blasphemer because he claimed to be equal with God. But they had to take him next to Pilate. And let's ask the question, who was Pilate? Who was Pontius Pilate? Well, he was the governor of Judea. He was in charge of the Roman troops that were there. He supervised some of the financial matters. He was kind of like the local governor. And history tells us this about Pilate, that he was an inflexible, stubborn, and cruel man. So let's keep reading. So we've seen, number one, Jesus is the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah. He's the Son of Man coming on clouds and power and glory. Let's see the third thing. Let's keep reading. Let's go into chapter 23. Verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. I find no guilt in this man, Pilate says. So here's the third thing. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the innocent Lamb of God. Now, these Jewish leaders know that calling Jesus a blasphemer, according to Jewish law, did not mean anything before Pontius Pilate. So what they had to do is they had to trump up some other charges to get Jesus to get arrested, to get tried. So they go towards the political. He's a, he's a political insurrectionist. And they level three charges against Jesus. Number one, he's subverting the nation. He's rising up against the nation. He's a troublemaker. Number two, He's telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, we know that's not true because earlier, what did Jesus say? Render under Caesar what's Caesar's. And then number three, Jesus claims to be a king. 
He's a threat to the Roman Empire. He's a threat to you, Pilate. He's an insurrectionist. He's a terrorist. He thinks he's a king. And then what does Pilate say? I don't see it. I don't see it. What does Pilate say in verse 4? I find no guilt in this man. Number one, first time. Okay, go to verse 14. He said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Three times, what does Pilate say? Three times this guy's innocent. I don't find this guy guilty. Three times Pilate says Jesus is innocent. Well, yes, Jesus is innocent of political insurrection. But more importantly, Jesus is the innocent, spotless, sinless lamb of God. Again, back to Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like sheep that before its shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's the lamb of God being led to the slaughter. The innocent lamb of God. This was read to open up our service this morning, but John the Baptist said it in John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pilate three times said Jesus is innocent. He he spoke more than he knew. Now we know Pilate was a coward because he ended up giving up Jesus. We'll see that next week. John's gospel gives a very interesting interaction between Jesus and Pilate. Some things that the other gospels don't give. In John 18, 36-38, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting for that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate wants to know, Jesus, are you a king? Are you this political insurrectionist? Are you this guy that wants to rise up and take over Rome? And what does Jesus say? My kingdom's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you're looking for, Pilate. The reason I was born was to testify to the truth. Now think about Christmas. Jesus says, this is why I was born, to testify to the truth. In other words, Jesus is the king of truth. That's why he was born. That's why he came. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is standing before Pilate in a person. 
The embodiment of absolute truth is standing before Pilate. And what does Pilate flippantly say? What is truth? Well, Pilate, he's looking you right in the eyes. He's standing before you. The king of truth. The one that you say is innocent. He is right before you. He's the light of the world. The truth. John 8, 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's Pilate going to do with Jesus? Is he going to see truth standing right in front of him? Is he going to see Jesus as the light of the world? Who's really on trial here? Is Jesus on trial or is Pilate on trial? Pilate's on trial. (laughs) Jesus is the innocent King of truth, the spotless Lamb of God, the one who had no sin, the perfect Lamb of God. Now, Pilate gets a little nervous here because he realizes that Jesus had been working in Galilee. Now, something you need to know about is that Pilate did not have jurisdiction over Galilee. Herod, the Tetrarch, had jurisdiction over Galilee. So that's why Pontius Pilate says, let me pass the buck, because I don't want to deal with this man. Let's send him to Herod, and let's let these Jewish people deal with their their issues. So he sends Jesus over to Herod, the Tetrarch. Now, Herod was placed there as kind of a puppet dictator, just to kind of appease the Jewish people. He was in charge of Galilee, but he's in Jerusalem at this time because it's Passover. And so let's keep reading how Pontius Pilate passes the buck and sends Jesus on to Herod. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. (coughs) Excuse me. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently, accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. (coughs) Let me get some water here. So we got... My microphone back on here. So we got Herod on the scene now. Questioning Jesus. So let's look at the fourth thing. Who is Jesus? He's a suffering servant. He's a son of man. He's the innocent lamb of God. But number four, Jesus is Christ the king. Now Herod thought he was king of the Jews. Who's king of the Jews? Herod would stand up and say, that's me. But Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true king. He's the true anointed one. We've seen this all throughout Luke, have we not? We're at the end of Luke. And I know we started this back in the... Can you believe this? We started this back in the summer of 2020. So I don't expect you to remember everything that we've talked about over the past two and a half years. But Luke has been laying before us from the very beginning. Jesus is the king. 
It was announced by Gabriel before his birth. Luke 1, 32-33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's the king. The angels announced it at his birth, did they not? Luke 2, 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the King. He's the Lord. Jesus announced this at his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. Luke 4, 18-19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me. That means the Messiah. He has anointed me. I am the Messiah. I am the King that's come to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You're the Messiah. You're Christ the King. You're the, you're the anointed one. Jesus says, I'm the anointed one. And then Peter's confession earlier in Luke, when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Luke 9, 20. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus is Christ the King. The word Christ means anointed one. The Messiah. The true one who has come to lead the people. Christ the king. Herod thought he was the king of the Jews. Jesus is truly Christ the king. But there's one more thing here. And it may not be as obvious because we've got to go to the book of Acts and look at it. But Here's number five. And it's very similar to being Christ the king, but Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He's the sovereign Lord. Now, interestingly enough, Herod here is fascinated with Jesus. He wants Jesus to kind of put on some miracles, do a show, do some signs. Hey, Jesus, you know, perform for me on demand. And Jesus is like, I'm not playing that game. So what do they do? They violently mistreat him. Herod's soldiers lay into Jesus. Notice verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. Now what does Mark's gospel tell us about this? Mark's, gives, Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more information. Mark 15, 17 through 20. They clothed him in a purple cloth and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Do you notice how this section here is bookended? How does it start? It starts back up in chapter 22 with the soldiers blaspheming and mocking and spitting and hitting Jesus. And how does it end here? The same thing. They put a crown of thorns and they're spinning and they're mocking and they're beating Jesus. They're treating him with contempt, which means they're devaluing him as nothing. And they're mocking him. And Jesus knew this was going to happen to him all along. What did Jesus tell his disciples earlier in the Gospel of Luke? Luke 18, 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Now, I want you to think about the men that are perpetrating evil on Jesus here. Who do you have? 
You've got soldiers that are mocking him and beating him and spitting on him. You've got Pilate, who's basically a coward that will find out, sentences Jesus to death. You've got Herod, who's this fake king that basically is making fun of Jesus. All these men, all these evil people are conspiring evil against Jesus. Yet, the cross was God's predestined plan for Jesus to die for our sins. Now, how do I know that? Because the book of Acts tells us that. Listen to the words of Peter at Pentecost. He stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he says this. He's talking to the Jewish people that put Jesus to death. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. It was God's definite predestined plan, but you carried it out. You're guilty of it. And then the early church, when they're praying, listen to what they say in Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city, talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, did we not see that this morning, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's what we need to see here. On a human level, these wicked men were responsible for the death of Jesus, and they will be held accountable. Humans carried out the actual sentencing, spitting, beating, crucifying, nailing to the cross. Humans accomplished that. But behind the scenes all along, on the heavenly level, It was God's predestined plan as absolute sovereign Lord that this would happen. And so when we see this sovereign plan of God unfolding, Jesus is never a victim of fate. Jesus is never like in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is God's predestined plan. This is God's definite plan. And it's being carried out by human agents we're reminded of what was read earlier in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who's the anointed there in that psalm? Jesus, the Messiah, Christ the King, the anointed one, the absolute Lord. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the nations are raging here against Jesus. The Jewish leaders, this kangaroo court, the soldiers sadistically mocking and beating Jesus, Pilate being a coward, Herod, they're all acting against the anointed one. And they will be held accountable for how they treated Jesus because they failed to answer the ultimate question. What's the ultimate question? Who is Jesus? They failed the test. Because standing before them was the suffering servant that they were beating. Standing before them was the son of man who's going to come in power and glory that they spat upon. Standing before them is the innocent Lamb of God that they put a crown of thorns on his head. Standing before them is Christ the King. Not Herod, not even the Roman Emperor, but Christ the King. And standing before them is Jesus the Sovereign Lord. 
So Luke has answered for us the ultimate question. Who is Jesus? But there's another question. It may be just as important. Who is Jesus? Okay, what's what's the second question? How will you respond to this Jesus? What are you going to do with this Jesus? What's your reaction, response to Jesus? So as we begin this Christmas season, let's just think about how do we, as we start Christmas, respond to who Jesus is? Well, he's the suffering servant. Do you realize that it was your sin that caused Jesus to suffer on the cross? Jesus was pierced for your transgressions. Jesus died in your place for your rebellion. Does this impact you in any way? Do you see the gravity of the sacrifice of Christ suffering for you? Jesus is the Son of Man, clothed in power and glory and majesty. And Jesus will come back in power and glory and majesty. And right now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in power and majesty and glory. And the question is, are you ready for his second coming? Are you ready for Jesus when he comes back? And all power and all glory as the Son of Man. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The innocent Lamb of God. Three times Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. Are you thankful that you, the guilty, could become innocent because the innocent became guilty? Jesus was innocent and was treated as a guilty sinner so that you and I could be declared not guilty because he went to the cross for us. Jesus is Christ the King. Is your heart preparing him room this Christmas as the king? Do do you bow in humble adoration for Jesus being your king? Like humbly bow, joyfully bow before Christ the king. Is your heart preparing him room? Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all. Whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord because of who He is. And so we have the joy of bowing before Him as Lord. And what Jesus is Lord means is that He has the sovereign right to tell you how to live and what to believe and to call the shots. You don't have that right. When you become a Christian, you give up all rights and you submit yourself to the one who has all rights over your life to direct and guide and lead you sovereignly as Lord. Do you submit to that? Do you submit to the Lord joyfully? So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, he's the suffering servant. He's the son of man. He's the innocent lamb of God. He's Christ the King, and He's the Sovereign Lord. That's who He is, the absolute truth. 
Now here comes your part. How will you respond to this Jesus today? Especially as we start the Christmas season. How will you respond to Jesus today? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and spend some time thinking about that. Spend some time in prayer meditating upon these five truths of who Jesus is and thinking about how you will respond to who Christ Jesus is. So would you take advantage of this time in prayer and in worship and in submission before our King? One of those attributes of Jesus that's just stuck out to you. And maybe you want to just take a few moments just to praise Him for that. So I'm going to give you just a few moments just to praise, praise Jesus for who he is. Maybe you want to praise him for all five or maybe just one stuck out with you, but, but just spend a few moments just, Jesus, I praise you for being the suffering servant or Christ the King or whatever it is that God leads you to do. Just spend some time in praise. Now as you've had time to praise Jesus, now it's time to respond to him. And so maybe you need to respond with repentance. Maybe you need to respond with worship. Maybe you need to respond with obedience or submission. So just spend a few moments saying, Jesus, here's how I need to respond and just go before him and telling him what you need to do and, and asking him to give you the grace to do it. So, so would you respond to Jesus in these few moments together? Lord Jesus, it amazes me when I look at this passage of Scripture to see how you were treated. Mocked and beaten, questioned, maligned, blasphemed, ridiculed. And these men had no idea who you were. They even asked you, are you the Christ? And you answered it. And they still acted the way they did. Lord, there's no doubt in our minds who you are. You are the suffering servant. You are the son of man in power and glory. You are the innocent lamb of God. You are Christ the king and Jesus. You are sovereign Lord. We don't make you these things. You are these things because of who you are. We have the joy of responding and repenting and submitting and trusting in you this morning. So Lord, help us to be joyful as we leave this place. Help us to be submissive. Help us to be hopeful. Help us to have the assurance to know who it is that we truly worship. Let our hearts get prepared as we start this Christmas season of who you truly are. And Lord, let us help share the message with others. Help, help us this season to tell others who you are to be bold in it, to not, not be ashamed of the gospel, but to, to, to joyfully and boldly proclaim who you are to a world that needs to know you, Jesus. 
So Lord, we want to leave this place with hope today because we've seen from the pages of Scripture who you truly are. So Lord, let it sink in from our heads down into our hearts. We've gotten information this morning, but Lord, we need more than information. We need transformation. And that can only come from your Holy Spirit doing a deep work. So Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh upon us this morning and grant us the grace to leave this place with eyes afresh upon Jesus, hearts renewed with joy, with hope, because we serve a wonderful King Jesus. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.